Hello, 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 and welcome back to the More Money Podcast. This is episode 288, and I'm your host, Jessica Morehouse. Welcome back to the show. So excited to finally share this episode because this was a listener request. You know that if you, you know, DM me on Instagram or tweet me or send me an email at jessica at jessicamorehouse.com, that is my email, jessica at jessicamorehouse.com, not only will I respond, but I will take your suggestions into consideration for the podcast. Obviously, I actually get quite a lot of requests, so I do my best in getting the right guests and and, then, you know, having those episodes. But this one I was able to do, and it was such a great episode to do. This episode is about divorce. I know. What do we need to know about money and marriage and divorce. I don't know because I'm not a lawyer, but I do have a lawyer on this episode of the show who also has a podcast. So you can even learn more about the specific topic on her podcast. So I have the wonderful Leanne Townsend on the show. She is a family law attorney here in Toronto. She's a counsel and chair of the family law group at Mills and Mills LLP, where her practice is focused on family law, domestic violence, and victim advocacy. And she's regularly interviewed in the media and has been featured on CBC, CB24, CTV News, uh, and a ton of radio stations, as well as Lawyers Daily and Divorce Magazine. And not only that, not only is she a lawyer and obviously super busy with her practice, but she also hosts the Divorcing Well podcast and the YouTube show, The Dish on Divorce. So, uh, I knew I needed to have her on the show because not only would she obviously make an amazing guest, I love having other people who have podcasts on the show, but also she really knows what she's talking about. And believe me, I uh, actually put on Instagram um, before I did this uh, interview, uh, put it out there, hey, what are your questions about you know money and relationships and divorce? Uh, send me your questions. And uh, I compiled all of them and asked Leanne pretty much all of them. I mean, I did have a lot of questions and specific questions too, and she did deliver. She sure as heck did. So I'm so excited to have her on the show. Now, before I get to that interview with Leanne, I just want to share a few words about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by BMO ETFs. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know I'm all about those ETFs, which stands for Exchange Traded Fund if you're new to the show. In my personal opinion, they are the best, most cost-efficient way to build a diversified investment portfolio. Why pay an MER that's upwards of 2% on a mutual fund when you can pay as low as 0.05% for an ETF with similar diversification and broad market exposure? And with BMO's vast selection of ETFs, there are ETFs to fit any investor's needs. You want exposure to the overall Canadian stock market? The BMO S&P TSX Capped Composite Index ETF, ticker ZCN, may be a great addition to your portfolio. Looking for similar exposure inside a more socially responsible ETF? The BMO MSCI Canada ESG Leaders Index ETF, ticker ESGA, invests in large and mid-cap stocks across Canada while excluding companies heavily involved in tobacco, alcohol, gambling, and weapons. Or maybe you're looking for a one-fund solution with an asset allocation ETF. The BMO Growth ETF, ticker ZGRO, is a portfolio of 80% equities and 20% fixed income that gives you exposure to the Canadian, U.S., and international markets. And the best part, it rebalances itself so you don't have to. To learn more about BMO's diverse menu of ETFs and to take a look at their free resources on ETF investing, visit BMOETFs.com. Once again, that's BMOETFS.com. Thank you so much, Leanne, for taking the time to be on the More Money Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show and to dive into this topic. So thanks for taking the time to be here. 
Oh, I'm happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. So I'm so glad I've, I actually stumbled upon you. I was doing some research because I wanted to do an episode on this topic about divorce and money. And, uh, you know, I found you and I'm like, oh, a fellow podcaster. Well, this is, <laughs> I think this is a, the perfect fit. You have a podcast called Divorcing Well, but also, you know, obviously you've, you've been doing this for, for quite a while. Do you want to share a little bit about your background and, and what do you specifically focus on in your practice? Yes. Um, so I am a family law lawyer. I am uh, chair of the family law group at a firm in Toronto called Mills and Mills LLP. I just joined that firm. I was at a boutique da- Bay Street firm um, prior to that. Um, and I spent the first uh, 16 plus years of, of my career as an assistant crown attorney um, prosecuting criminal offenses. And I was the co-lead of the domestic violence team uh, in the Toronto West office. So I early on in my career, I always had an interest in domestic abuse and helping victims of abuse. And I carried that over into my family law practice. I do Um, I mean, I take on all kinds of family law cases, but I have a specialization helping uh, victims of abuse, whether it's, um, you know, physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse and financial abuse, which is, you know, another common area of abuse. Oh, wow. Well, we can definitely dive into that. I did an episode a few years ago about the topic on financial abuse. And this is another thing that is it, it actually probably happens quite, uh, you know, a lot more than we we expect, but it's something that no one talks about. So that's that's very fascinating. <laughs> um, but uh, like I mentioned before, I hit the record button. I uh, put up on my Instagram, um, you know, does anyone have any questions? I'm going to be uh, interviewing a lawyer and we're going to get into it. And I got flooded with questions. So I think the topic of you know, divorce and, or just even just, you know, what are some things to potentially protect yourself if you're thinking about getting married or if you're already married? There's so uh, many questions. And that's because there's, I think people just don't talk about it. I guess divorce is kind of like a bad word or it's, it's one of those things where so, oh, we don't talk about, but it, it should be because it, it's very uh, important and there's still, uh, you know, high divorce rates. So it's something that we all need to be more informed about. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I kind of want to start off maybe with a little softball question, but what are some uh, kind of, I guess, common mistakes you see, um, you know, couples that are entering marriage? I know you are kind of on the other side of it, you know, helping people divorce. But what are some kind of, I, I got the question, what are some common mistakes people make that are very preventable? Um, I think one of the common mistakes is people don't talk about money. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of a taboo subject, you know, even still people, you know, when they're engaged or, you know, they're looking at getting married or moving in together, they, you know, they'll talk about sex and they'll talk about, you know, children or things like that. But money's often something that people are uncomfortable talking about. And so, and and arguments over money are one of the leading causes of divorce. So it is something that's important to, to talk about. And it's also important to understand your partner's money style, because that that's also an area where there often are problems when one is a spender and one is a saver. And, you know, these are things that you can know, you know, beforehand. And, um, you know, and it's important, I think, early on to to have an understanding of um, both yours and your spouse's financial situation. Don't have one person just handling the money. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I always say it's, you know, it's funny, you have to get independent legal advice to get a divorce, but I actually think you should have to get independent legal advice to get married. Um, I think it could save a lot of, um, you know, problems down the road, um, you know, to find just to find out that information about, well, if this marriage doesn't work out, what, you know, what are my rights? What are my obligations? And, you know, then if you think you might need a prenuptial agreement, our marriage contract, as we tend to call it here in Canada, then, then you'll get one. Yeah, I got a ton of questions about prenups. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like people are starting to talk about them a little bit more. But one, and this might be a, a you know, misconception or a myth. Uh, I always thought, you know, and I've been married for over eight years now, um, that you don't need a prenup if you are entering the marriage without like that much money, like prenups are for for wealthy people that want to protect their assets before entering marriage. But I, I don't know if that's maybe is that wrong? Or, you know, what should people understand about uh prenups or what sorry are they called what are they called in canada <laughs> i didn't even know there's a different name <laughs> yeah we have to call them cohabitation agreements if mm. you're living together or a marriage contract if you're going to be married um prenups is are more of a term used in the united states so i could also like a domestic contract and contemplation of marriage, but marriage contract and cohabitation agreement are the two, you know, main terms that we use up here. Um, and it, they are something coming up more and more. And to address your point um, about, you know, the financial, um, uh, you know, picture for the, the different partners. I mean, yes, it, it's still something that if you have significant, um, you know, investments and you have a fairly high net worth, it's, it's still something that's going to be more favorable for you to have than if you are going into a marriage with nothing. But what it does essentially is it, you know, it's like, it's almost like a business partnership, right? And so it sets out, you know, just like in a partnership agreement, you have terms that if the partnership is to dissolve, how is that going to happen? What, how do the people get out of it? How is it going to be done? You know, a marriage contract, would be the same thing where, you know, yes, the idea is that the marriage is going to work out, but if it doesn't, here's what's going to happen. And, you know, it's ideal to do it at a time when both people are, you know, in love and they're amicable and they're being reasonable and agreeable, you know, versus down the road when things don't go well. And, you know, then there's, you know, emotion getting more into the picture and, and affecting people's ability to be reasonable. So even if you don't have a lot, it can still be an advantage to, to to have a document that specifies so that, you know, how how things will look if the marriage doesn't work out and everybody knows that going in. Do you find that they're becoming more popular in uh, Canada compared to maybe like 10 or 20 years ago when I feel like no one was really talking about it? Yeah, they definitely are. I find I'm getting um, retained to do them more often. Uh, they're particularly popular with, you know, second marriages um, or, you know, marriages where one party, you know, has already children from another relationship. So they may want to protect their children, uh, you know, in some fashion. Um, but even on new relationships, I am seeing more like first marriages. I am seeing more of them today than I did mm -hmm. years ago. Now, you mentioned cohabitation agreements. I remember that's something I actually looked up when me and my husband first moved in together before we were um, married, and we never actually did anything about it, but I looked into it. Um, <laughs> but can you kind of share, because I've gotten a lot of questions too about, uh, you know, common law versus being married. I think also there's a lot of confusion. I mean, I don't quite know what the difference is. Sometimes it looks like 
they're very similar in terms of like you're you're right. So can you kind of explain what would first be the difference between a cohabitation agreement um, compared to a marriage contract? Okay, so a cohabitation agreement is for people who are not married but who are living together in a you know intimate relationship. Uh, a marriage contract is for couples who are actually legally married, and. Here in Canada, there are differences in terms of the legal rights that you have based on which of those relationships that you're in. So generally speaking, it only do you have property rights if you are married. So if you live common law and your partner has investment accounts and rental properties and um, things like that, uh, unless you can make a claim that you've contributed to these in some fashion, um, it can be those properties belong to the partner who, who owns title. Whereas if you're married, there's you know something called an equalization payment and net family property, and there's rights that accrue that you know you could potentially be entitled to half, maybe not half, but some amount. Um, of your partner's assets that are in his or her name. So the property rights thing is a big difference. Um, parts of the U.S., I think, common law, they do have property rights. And so, you know, up here we watch movies and TV. And it, I think that's why there's a lot of confusion mm -hmm. as people see, you know, the state of California, you know, common law is a certain way. And, and then, so that creates confusion. But that that's one big difference. Um Spousal support and child support, people are entitled to that regardless of whether they're married or common law. Um, at common law, you have to have lived together for three years um, or have children with the person in order to be entitled to spousal support. Um, and so those rights are, aren't really different between the two. But the, the big difference is property and the matrimonial home is a big one as well, because if you are um, married, the matrimonial home has a special status in that both parties have a right to possession. So uh, even if title is in one person's name only, the other party has a right to possession. So they can't just be kicked out you know, onto the street if things don't go well, whereas in common law, that could happen. Wow, interesting. So it seems like you have, uh, as a married person, a bit more rights in terms of, I guess, property than if you were common law, which I guess it could be good and bad. I mean, if you're if you want to make sure hey, I want you know, things to be split 50 50, if we break up in your common law, but you didn't maybe contribute, then you might be kind of out of luck. But if you're married, you may have more rights to, you know, like the property, I guess that maybe you did uh, share or something like that. Yeah, That's and, and like we're you know, where it comes in a lot is if you have a stay-at-home mom, for example, and mm. you know, situations where they lived common law and, and mom gave up her career and stayed home and everything is in dad's name um, and she has no property in her name. And so then she's in a situation where she's having to prove that she contributed to the home by taking care of the children and running mm. the household and things like that. And I mean, there's certainly case law that would support that in that situation, she should be entitled to something. But if they'd been married, she wouldn't have to prove anything. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I also got lots of questions about, um, I guess, like when you are common law, when you separate, how different is it? Because I, I guess it wouldn't be called a divorce um, exactly, but you are still in a, you know, a, a kind of a 
relationship that has uh, certain rights. What is the, I guess, difference between separating when you're common law versus, I guess, getting a divorce? Uh, I think lots of people were just wondering, you know, is it, uh, do I have to hire a lawyer? Is it more difficult? Is it just, can it be just as contentious or is it easier? Um, what, what would your thoughts be on that? Well, I'm going to give such a lawyer answer to this. <laughs> It depends, um, you know, because it really depends on how each, whether you're common law or whether you're married, your situation can be simple or it can be complicated. And so um, if you're common law, you don't need to, to get a divorce, you, but you still need to have a separation agreement. You're still going to need to exchange financial disclosure, have a parenting plan if you have children, those sorts of things. So the only step that's different if you are actually married is if you want to get a divorce. In addition to all the other stuff, you'll also have to um, do, get a, you know, do a divorce application. And usually they're uncontested. So it's a fairly straightforward process. The, the meat of everything is the separation agreement, the financial disclosure, and the parenting plan. And you have to do those, you know, regardless of your situation. And, you know, a lot of people, I think lawyers do a horrible PR job. Um, you know, everyone hates us. Everyone wants to use <laughs> us, um, you know. And all I can say, is, you know, and I am biased because I obviously am a lawyer, but I think knowledge is power. And sometimes people try to do things themselves and, they end up hurting themselves significantly because they didn't, you know, you can only Google so many things, you know, just like Google doesn't replace an orthopedic surgeon. Um, you know, Google doesn't replace a, a family law lawyer, uh, particularly if things are, you know, a little more complicated. And, you know, even if you want to just consult a lawyer, you know, nowadays there's all these options, um, you know, like limited scope retainers and, um, you know, the firm I'm at Mills and Mills, they have a division called Legal Shield where people can use that and, you know, consult with a lawyer as needed. So there's ways of saving some money. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I, it is really important. To, you're dealing with the most important things in your life, your children, your finances, your home. It's important to get proper advice. I would agree. <laughs> I would not want to try to DIY a divorce. That's, <laughs> um, you know, it's it seems way too complicated. That's for sure. Um, you know, going back to to talking about the cohabitation uh, agreements and the marital contract, a lot of people wondering what should you? I mean, obviously, you would work with a lawyer to draft that, but what are some things that you should include? I think I'm not even sure where I'd start. I mean, obviously, I, I'm married now, so it's it's too late for me. <laughs> but uh, you know, what are some things that but uh, if that's something that you both want to do, this you know these are some things that you should probably have in there. Um, well, first off, um, what a lot of people do is you know they might have something in there where what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. So you know title ends up ruling how assets are to be divided. So and if it's if you're both on title, if both parties are on title, then it's divided 50-50. So that might be something that gets spelled out in a marriage contract. Um, it might also spell out that, you know, what Charlie brought into the marriage and what Jill brought into the marriage are, you know, for them to keep. And if they're not, they're not forming part of their net family property or any marital assets. Sometimes um, there's spousal support waivers that are, you know, in a marriage contract, or there's situations where, you know, if there's a big disparity in the incomes of the parties, there might be something specifying that if you're married this long, you know, this is the amount of spousal support. If it goes to this point, you know, this much, um, 
or it could just be, you know, a waiver altogether. Um, there can be things sometimes parents loan money um, mm-hmm. or you know, buy a house for their child. So there can be things, you know, excluding that or how that's going to be treated because one of the partner's parents were the ones who actually bought it or loaned the money for the mortgage or however that might work. Um, the one thing you de- you cannot do is contract out of um, anything to do with the children. You can't put in things to do with custody and access or, or joint or decision-making and parenting time as we call them now, mm-hmm. or anything to do with child support. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I, and I'm not sure if this exists in Canada, but you know, hear a lot of this in the US, a post-nup, a post-nuptial agreement. Do those exist here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would essentially be a marriage contract. So oh, okay. So you do yeah. that when, but when you're already married, is that how it works? Yeah. So you're already okay. married and you can do that at any time, you know, that, oh. and that's the thing you get these people who are on the eve of getting married and they're, <laughs> yeah. they're in this high stress situation to sign a marriage contract. And sometimes it's better to either, um, to do like, an, sometimes what happens is they'll do like an interim without prejudice agreement just to extend the time to do the proper agreement. So it's not done under, you know, the kind of the duress of the impending nuptials, or you could just, you know, do a post nuptial or, or, you know, marriage contract. And, you know, the reality is that yes, like certain rights do accrue as soon as somebody's married, but there's also provisions in the family law legislation for, you know, for something not to be completely unfair, if you were married, you know, if you owned a home and you were married two weeks, um, I don't think this after two weeks is going to be entitled to half the value of the home. Um, But, you know, so there's, you know, there's a sense of fairness that way, but it's definitely better to get it sorted out before you get married and to plan it, you know, significantly in advance of your, your wedding date. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's also kind of awkward to bring it up if you've already been married to be like, hey, will you sign this contract? It's not, you know, if you haven't discussed it, uh, it may be a little awkward. Um, Yeah, it very well. Yeah, may not go over well. That is for sure. Um, I'm I'm also curious, and I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this, but I've always been curious about this, probably because it's been in ton of movies. So you've probably seen it too. Um, Annulments, you know, you you find out something wrong about your partner, you know, a day after you get married, you get annulled. Uh, How different is that from a divorce? Is it kind of like an like from what I understand, you know, it's 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 something to be like, no, this marriage never happened, so it's different than a divorce. But is it actually Actually, in terms of, you know, the separation of, you know, assets or anything? Um, You know, that's a good question. And I can honestly say I've never done an annulment. Um, Maybe they're not common. Maybe they're just a movie thing. (laughs) Yeah, I I think they possibly happen. Often there's, I think, a religious, you know, basis for somebody wanting that in situations. I have not done one, um, but I would... You know, it's, I would assume that, um, again, it would depend on the length of the marriage, but there's going to have to be some family law consideration of the family law legislation, um, you know, in terms of how things need to be divided, you know, even if there's an, an annulment rather than a divorce, because you're still separating um, and the legislation would still be applicable. It's just that maybe instead of having terms about how a divorce is going to happen. There's steps in there outlining how the annulment, you know, who's going to be responsible for the paperwork or, you know, any other person's going to cooperate and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, another question that I, I get uh, often, um, and, and I feel like maybe we've kind of answered this, but maybe not. 
Um, so when we're, you know, saying, you know, say we're married and we're getting a divorce, I think lots of people are confused as to what is my partner's and what is mine. So, you know, I, I think um, there's this misconception that if we commingle all of our money, then, you know, it's all commingled. So we're probably going to have to split it 50-50 or something like that. But if I have some money in some personal bank accounts and personal investment accounts, that remains mine because it's only under my name. Is that how that works or not at all? Um, it is how it works, um, but it's kind of a little more complicated in that when you go through um, like any separation, whether it's common law or, or divorce, um, well, more divorce because you've got the property rights, um, you fill out uh, what's called a Form 13.1 financial statement. And on that statement, you list all of your assets li and liabilities, and it's got income and expenses. And so when you list your assets, you're going to put everything that's in your name. So if you have a bank account that's in your name or an RSP that's in your name, you're going to list that. Any joint assets. So if you had a matrimonial home that was worth a million dollars, you would put $500,000 on your side and your spouse would put $500,000. And so then you add up all those numbers. You and, say, and liabilities are treated the same way, joint versus in your own name. So both parties arrive at a number that's called their net family property. And usually they're not exactly the same because there are things like pensions and RSPs and bank accounts. And so even though a lot of stuff is commingled and there's going to be some, you know, there's a joint bank account and there's a matrimonial home that's jointly held. And, you know, some of those types of things, these little individual things are what make the numbers, you know, sometimes not exactly the same so that one party does end up owing the other party uh, what's called an equalization payment to make mm. them equal. Interesting. Okay. So you're not necessarily protecting yourself by like hiding some money in a bank account your partner doesn't know because if you divorce, you're going to have to reveal that information anyway. Well, certainly legally, you have to reveal yeah. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Legally. <laughs> um, but, you know, not to say that I think there, you know, there's people out there that do hide money. And, um, no. you know, there's a trail somewhere, though. It's very hard <laughs> to successfully hide it because, if, you know, whether it's coming through your paycheck or something that, you know, you were paid out, there's usually a trail of it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Don't try to hide the CRA or someone will find it. So <laughs> there's always going to be some sort of paper trail. Um, you mentioned some things that, um, you know, also come up a lot, alimony and, uh, or spousal support and, and uh, uh, child support. How, how does that typically work? I mean, I, you know, spousal support, uh, especially when would that come up? I know, you know, when you think about divorce, sometimes that's, it's, you know, I, I don't know anyone who's gotten divorced and does this spousal support, but again, I'm only in my thirties, so we'll see. But <laughs> when does that typically come up? Is it typically when one of the, you know, uh, partners was maybe the stay at home parent? Um, yeah, that's certainly a situation where it would come up is if, you know, one party was a stay-at-home parent, um, it would come up where the there's a, you know, a significant difference between what the parties earn. So even though the other party works, say she she or he earned 40000 a year and the other partner earned 400000 a year and they were married, you know, for 10 or more years, there, there might be some spousal support there. Um, typically, it, it's based on um, need and means. So there has to be a need and there has to be a means. And then we have something called the spousal support advisory guidelines, where lawyers plug the numbers in and it spits out, you know, an amount that 
should be paid in spousal support. Um, the rule of thumb is that spousal support is usually paid for half the length of the relationship to the entire length of the relationship, depending on, you know, the specific factors of that specific relationship. There's also something called compensatory support, which is a different type of support. Um, and it that type of support might be where, a, you know, the, the wife gave up her career to stay home and raise children. And, you know, 20 years later, they're getting a divorce. And now she doesn't have the same career options, isn't as employable. So she should receive some amount of money and support as compensation for the fact that she gave up her career. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it, spousal support is different than child support in that um, the payor of spousal support can get a tax um, deduction for it. And the the payee has to declare it as income, whereas mm-hmm. child support, that doesn't happen with. Right. And and so for, for child support, how does that, I guess that's also kind of wrapped up into whatever the custody agreement is, but is it always, uh, like, does it always exist? Or if you do like a 50-50 custody um, split, is child support even required? Um, so child support is based on the federal child support guidelines, and it's considered to be the right of the child. So it's not for something for parents to contract away, it's the right of the child. And it's based on how many children are in the family and what the payor's income is. So you go onto the guidelines, payor's earning 200,000 a year, there's two children and it'll show an amount, you know, that actually 150 might've been a better example because once a person earns over 150, um, there's a different, slightly different calculation that's in the guidelines. Um, Now, if you have a situation where, uh, so part of child support is also based on how much time the children spend with each parent. So if one parent has the children, um, you know, 61% of the time or more, then they would be entitled to full child support. Their income wouldn't matter. It would be based on the payor's income. Um, but if it's 60, 40 or, you know, 50, 50 or 55, 45, something like that, then if both parents have an income, there's something that's done that's called a set off. And Mm -hmm. how that works is you go on the child support guidelines for both parents. So you take dad's income, um, you know, again, say his income is 150,000 and you look at for two children, what he should be paying, let's say mom's income. And I hate to be stereotyping Mm -hmm. here because especially these days, it could be switched around. It could be mom Mm -hmm. has got better income, but for the sake of argument, say mom's income was 50,000 and you look what someone with 50,000 with two children would be paying. And then whatever the difference is, the person with the higher income. So in my example, dad would be paying that difference to mom as an offset. Mm. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I I think this. I, I I don't know if you can answer this. So just give me some general guidelines. But I got a lot of questions. How much does this cost? So hiring a lawyer or or hiring a lawyer to do a custody agreement. I am sure it's a scale. It kind of depends on your particular needs or how long the process is. But like, what are some costs that people can kind of expect if they you know want to file for divorce or go through something like this? 
Well, you know, it does, it really does depend and it's going to depend on how complicated the matter is and how much conflict there is. Um, I tell people, you know, an initial consultation who come to me and it's a fairly amicable, straightforward situation and they really just need a, a financial disclosure and a separation agreement and parenting plan. And I will tell them that that will run anywhere from about $2,500 to $5,000, depending on um, how complicated and how much negotiation there is back and forth. Um, of course, if couples are high conflict and they can't agree on anything and, you know, they end up going to court, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, so it really, it really, really depends. And sometimes things aren't as straightforward as people say. I, I recall once I had a client come to me and she said that it was going to be an uncontested divorce, which generally I quote people about $2,000 all fees in for that. And it ended up that her ex-spouse, um, you know, had some mental health issues and addiction issues, and he didn't—he was didn't fully understand what was going on, and he was fighting this divorce, and he was like harassing me, and it ended up, and he was evading service, and so it ended up being a lot more costly than I'd initially quoted her, just because I you know, she didn't mention that, that piece of the information, you know, to me when we had the initial consultation. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes there can be some unexpected things that that make it more complicated. Um, you know, the other thing is, it depends on the parties. Like I have parties who are very or clients who are very organized, very efficient, and I don't need to do as much. Um, but you know, then I also have clients who are more disorganized, and I have to ask them, five times for something and they're calling me every day, you know, complaining about their spouse being on a dating site and, you know, things like that, um, knowing that I bill by my time and, you know, that runs up the bill. So there, there are lots of things people can, you know, use your lawyer as a lawyer, not as a, a coach or a therapist, you know, that mm-hmm. can help keep your fees down and, um, you know, try to be reasonable with your partner and keep your emotions out of it. And that will also help keep your fees down. Mm-hmm. Is there, I, I remember this was years ago, but I knew someone who worked as a mediator. What, do you know what, like, I, I don't really know. I didn't really know what her role was, but I knew she did help couples. I think in this process there, she wasn't a lawyer, but she kind of helped them. Is that kind of like maybe the middle, <laughs> the middle man to deal with all the, the, uh, kind of maybe, um, paperwork or, or, you know, kind of so they don't have to go to you and then get their, you know, uh, bill going up, up and up? Is that something that might make the process easier? Or I'm not sure if I I have that right at all. But sometimes mediation can be cheaper. I I find that a lot of mediators market themselves as being a cheaper alternative to lawyers. But it's not always necessarily true. And when you see a mediator, you still need to get a lawyer mm-hmm. um, at the end of it all to get independent legal advice. And your lawyer might advise you of a bunch of things you didn't realize in the mediation, and then everything has to be changed. So, and there's different types of mediation. There's mediation where lawyers are a part of the mediation. So the clients are there with their lawyers and the mediator who is an independent third party. And then there's mediation where the clients just go themselves and maybe they've retained a lawyer at the beginning, but they, so they consult with their lawyer as needed as they're going through the mediation. Um, and then there's somewhere that people just go on their own and then get legal advice at the end. And, and, and all of those models are appropriate for different situations. But the only caution I always say to people is that a mediator will not advocate for you. A mediator is an independent 
person and their job is to stay independent. So if you're not good at negotiating with your spouse or there's a power imbalance and things like that, you just have to be mindful of that if you choose to go into it without having a lawyer assisting you. Well, since you've been doing this for so long, what are some other, I mean, I guess, uh, tips or uh, bits of advice that you could give um, for people thinking of getting married, um, how can they properly protect ourselves? I think obviously one could be taking a look at that uh, marriage contract or if they're, they're common law and they don't you know, want to get married, but they you know, are going to be together for a while, a cohabitation agreement. Anything else um, you know, that you've seen that you're like, oh, this would be something good for people to know so they can kind of protect themselves uh, in case they do separate? I think it's important to um, be in touch with the family finances. So even if one party is primarily responsible for paying the bills, I think it's important that both parties know what the bills are, where the, you know, the inflows and outflows of cash and money into the home. I think that that should never be something that you have paid no attention to and have no understanding of, because I think that does put you in a more vulnerable position. So that would be, you know, the number one thing. Um, again, I'm also, and I hate to say this because I think being a stay-at-home mom is one of the most honorable things someone can do, but it does put you potentially in a vulnerable position um, if you stay home, you know, and for 20 years. It's one thing to stay home for five years maybe, but I think that in that type of situation, it's even more important that you understand the family finances. And you may even want to have something in a marriage contract that specifies that if you give up your career for X number of years, that that will be reflected in, you know, some sort of settlement that you that, you know, it's yeah. in terms of spousal support or compensation that you get for doing that. And I think that could be a way of, of protecting yourself as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know this is kind of funny timing, but uh, I'm rewatching the series Mad Men with my husband and it is making, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting look at the past, um, especially in a 2021 lens, but also it really does make you think, especially as a woman, wow, we really didn't have it easy back then. And luckily, you know, we're in a, a better spot now. I mean, obviously, it's still more to go. But uh, yeah, like you kind of mentioned, um, you know, lots of the characters, you know, were in um, vulnerable positions because they were stay at home parents. And, and then if they wanted to get a divorce, they had kind of no right. So I guess this is sort of my last uh, question. And I again, I, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it, but uh, or maybe it maybe it's actually pretty simple. In terms of, you know, uh, women, men, uh, how much have we progressed in terms of, I guess, rights? Is it equal rights? I know back in the 50s, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, as a woman, you didn't have as many rights if you wanted to divorce your partner. Is it pretty much like we're on equal footing, no matter what your gender is, if you want to divorce your partner? Uh, so, I mean, I think it really, uh, my straight answer to the question is that I think it is equal. It's certainly equal in theory, but sometimes in its application, it, it doesn't always work out that way. I see plenty of situations, whether it's the female or the male or the payor, or the payee, where they are in a situation where they're being unfairly treated uh, by the law. I've seen lots of women who have become almost destitute in situations where they lived a nice lifestyle, um, you know, because they are dependent on being paid money by their ex-husband. Um, I also see women who are bitter that they're having to pay their ex-husband. You know, we are seeing mm -hmm. women earn more money nowadays, and that is starting to come up. Um, and I also see, you know, payors who 
are paying out a lot of money to a spouse um, that, you know, conceivably, I've seen, you know, spouses being paid twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month in spousal wow. support. And that's just to me insane. Uh, <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> you know, but it go that does go on too. So I think in theory it's fair. It's I, I can't think of another model right now that would be more fair, but it it's you know, the application doesn't always work out fairly. Mm-hmm. So still some uh, progress uh, necessary as we continue into the future. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. So uh, you have your own uh, podcast called Divorcing Well. Do you want to kind of share a little bit more about uh, what that's about? I'm sure people that are already interested in this topic uh, would love to listen to your show to kind of dive more deep into it. Yes, um, it can be found on all the platforms where podcasts are uh, found, like I, you know, Apple, iTunes, mm-hmm. Spotify, etc. And the reason I call it divorcing well is because it takes a holistic approach to divorce. So I interview guests who talk about, you know, things, legal issues, but financial issues, uh, nutrition through divorce, um, the importance of mindfulness, um, you know mental health, like all these sorts of topics, I approach it, you know, from that perspective and have guests on who can speak to all of those types of areas. And I also have guests on who just who share their story so that someone else might be inspired or learn something by hearing, um, you know, from someone who was also in that situation not that long ago themselves and how they experienced it and were able to come out, you know, in a okay situation. That's great. That's great. Because yeah, I'm sure, you know, divorce is is still unfortunately one of those things that is still kind of considered taboo. There's still lots of emotion and shame wrapped into it, which I don't think uh, it should be because again, we're, you know, what year is it? And we're still kind of uh, having these whispered conversations about this. So I think it's really important uh, that people talk about this and learn more about it and also realize that if they're going through this, they're not alone. A lot of people are going through it. I'm not sure if you know what the stat is on like average divorce rates now, but is it still kind of like 50%? (laughs) They stopped keeping track of it for some reason that I don't understand. Canada stopped keeping track of it but you know I I'm here that it's roughly 50 percent um I think there's less marriages than there used to be but yeah that um, makes sense (laughs) yeah but I think it's still kind of around you know the 50 percent mark and then if you have a second marry for a second time the statistic is higher in terms of there being a chance for divorce Mm-hmm. So that just goes to show you're not if you're going through this, you're not alone. 50% exactly. of the population has probably experienced this. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the show. If, if someone wants to, uh, you know, uh, con- uh, connect with you, ask you questions, possibly hire you, where can they find you? Uh, well, I have a website that's my main website. It's www.leannetownsend.ca and all of my contact information is there. But they can also find me at my firm website, which is www.millsandmills.ca. So either of those places, they'll be able to find all my contact information. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer my a long list of questions. And believe me, it is even a longer list than this, but I had to cut a bunch of these questions because I'm like, you know what, we'll be here for five hours. So thanks so much for being on the show and answering everything. It was was a pleasure having you on. Well, thank you so much. It was a, a pleasure to be on the show. And that was episode 288 with Leanne Townsend. Make sure to check her out at leannetownsend.ca. You can follow her on Twitter at Leanne 
underscore Townsend. And you, you can also follow her on the gram at Leon Townsend Life. I will, of course, link to everything so you can easily find uh, not only her website and her social media, but also her YouTube channel. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to her podcast, The Divorcing Well Podcast. I'm going to link to all those in the show notes for this episode. Just go to jessicamorehouse.com slash 288 for all of that good stuff. Um, as we are kind of wrapping up season 12 of this show, um, I've got a lot to say. So there's only a few more episodes left. And this is actually kind of the longest I feel of, of this season that kind of winter spring season we're entering. We're in summer now, right? This is summer now. I think this is summer. Um, anyways, so I have lots to share with you. So do not go away. I just want to share a few words about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by BMO ETFs. With so much innovation happening in the world, why not add some more innovation to your investment portfolio? BMO ETFs recently launched their line of innovation ETFs to provide a more accessible and cost-effective way to invest in megatrend companies with the potential for exponential growth in the years to come. These ETFs focus on up-and-coming sectors like fintech, genomics, next-generation internet, autonomous tech and industrial, and clean energy. Want to invest in companies like Tesla, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Apple? Well, buying the individual stocks can get pretty expensive. Instead, you may want to invest in the BMO MSCI Tech and Industrial Innovation Index ETF, ticker ZAUT, to become a shareholder in those companies plus 228 other growth companies in that sector. Want to invest in companies at the forefront of developing products in the field of genomic sequencing, synthesis, molecular diagnostics, and agricultural biotech? The BMO MSCI Genomic Innovation Index ETF, ticker ZGEN, holds 196 companies in that sector that you can gain easy access to. To learn more about BMO's selection of innovation ETFs and to take a look at their free resources on ETF investing, visit BMOETFs.com. Once again, that's BMOETFS.com. Okay, so let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to some important announcements. So like I mentioned, we're wrapping up this season of this show. And uh, but before that, really, I've got a I've got some really great episodes to share with you. So we only have two more weeks of the show, including this week. But tomorrow I have a bonus episode for you that you were not going to want to miss, especially if you love my episodes on investing. We're diving deep into the world of ETFs, exchange traded funds with a very, very savvy uh, guy with ETFs. Let's just say he is the director of BMO ETFs. <laughs> Let me just say that. Um, so we really get into the nitty gritty about ETFs. Um, so uh, and because I get so many questions about ETFs and, uh, you know, investing in general, passive investing, uh, I had a lot of questions for him. So you're not going to want to miss that episode. It's a great episode. Uh, and then uh, the following week, I've got not one, not two, but three episodes for you. So we're kind of going out with a bang if you want, um, just because I have two amazing guests and then I want to do a fun little solo episode because I have not done a solo episode and who knows how long. I mean, let me just check my little schedule. When was the last time I even did one? I think it's been at least a year. Gosh, well, a lot has happened and I need to, I, I have a lot to say. So um, that's why I'm doing a solo episode because uh, I love doing them and it's, it's, you're, you're going to want to, you're going to want to check it out. So that's very exciting. Okay. Other updates, uh, reminder, reminder. 
since, you know, we only have uh, two more weeks of the show, this is your last call to enter my uh, big book giveaway. I'm actually going to add a few. Uh, do I have any more? Oh, I think I have one more book to add to the contest, which I'm going to add next week. Um, but yeah, if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash contest or check out the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to the contest page. I'm giving away, I believe, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and then 13, total 13 books. That means you have, you know, a good chance of actually winning, you know? Um, so I will of course be announcing the winners, not on the podcast. Cause I'm going to, uh, choose the winners after the podcast wraps. I will be emailing the winners directly. So if you win, you will be notified, but also I'm going to announce it in my, well, maybe social media, maybe I'll do something like that. Um, but more, more likely I am just going to send out an e-blast through my, um, email list. So if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash subscribe, you can get into my email list and you will find uh, out who wins all of the books. Uh, hopefully it's you. But also, uh, when you're on my email list, you find out first of all these very important things that I'm up to. I'm going to be doing some great things during the summer on while I'm on podcast hiatus until September. And so I'm going to probably be doing some webinars. I probably have some more info about my course that I was supposed to launch back in January, my kind of revamped new version of my Fix Your Finances Masterclass. I am working on it. <laughs> it's just my investing course, my Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians course, which I absolutely love, has kind of taken over my life, which is great. But uh, yeah, so that's why it's kind of taken me an extra six months to to work on the second course. So here we are. So I will be announcing more information about that course uh, very soon. If you're already a student of my previous course, you obviously uh, get the new course. I'm going to be, um, well, I've already sent out by the time this recording goes out. I've already emailed you some information about what's going on. So yeah, anyways, lots of exciting things that are that's going to happen in the summer because I'm not going anywhere. I mean, fingers crossed is looking like I'd actually get my second vaccine dose fairly soon, which is very exciting, which means I'm going to be on the first flight I can get to Vancouver because I have not seen my family in almost two years. And that is not okay. That's not okay. Anyways, um, I lost my train of thought that I started just getting really sad about <laughs> the fact that I haven't seen my family and been like locked in this cave that is my house for way too long. And I can't wait for real life. I cannot wait for real life. Anyway, so yeah, so that's the contest. That's the email list. Well, so, oh, another exciting thing. So um, you may have uh, heard, well, I'll kind of talk a little bit about this in my solo episode, but anyways, recent, you know, made some big changes with my business. I'll get into that uh, later in that solo episode. But uh, one thing is uh, my sister works for me now, which is pretty cool. And one of the projects we've been working on is uh, to add some merch to my kind of online store, something I've never thought about doing, but I'm like, why not? It's kind of fun. It's really not about making that much money because you can't honestly, you can't make that much money off it. Um, but it's just like a fun way to create some products, um, you know, like hats and stuff like that, that are just like cool stuff. It's really, it was inspired by the fact that me and her, you know, kind of look at the same websites for clothes and cannot find anything that is like empowering or <laughs> positive 
or just, you know, I'm just, I can't, I can't with another shirt that says girl boss. I can't do it. I'm not, how about just a boss? How about just a boss? So anyways, we're kind of, uh, you know, having some fun and creating some merch. So hopefully by the time this episode airs, if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash shop, there will be a few of our first items on there. And I'm very, very excited about it. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to release a lot more stuff as uh, time goes by and you're interested. But uh, yeah, it's just like a fun project for trying out and just having a good good old time, you know? Why not? Why not? Just, you know, try things out and see what happens. Um, okay, what else? I think that's kind of it for now because I feel like I've been talking for long enough and you have things to do. You're a busy person. You've got a life and, you know, you got you got to get going. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Like I mentioned, tomorrow is a bonus episode, so make sure to drop back here tomorrow for that episode. So uh, before I let you go, big shout out to my wonderful podcast editor, Matt Rideout. And for you, you know, make sure to go outside, you know, enjoy that sunshine, put on that sunscreen. We don't want to get burned. We do not want to get a sunburn. It's just the beginning of summer. Breathe in that fresh air and take care of yourself. Take some time for you because you need it and you deserve it. And I'll see you back here tomorrow. So uh, thanks for listening. Ciao. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.